This morning, we're going to continue to follow the unfolding story of the Old Testament and consider how the story of the Old Testament prepares us to understand the story of Christ Jesus. And in Exodus, a lot has changed for the people of God since last we saw them. At the end of Joseph's journey, the last story that we considered together at the end of the book of Genesis, God's people are seen within Egypt as a a source of blessing since Joseph had been uniquely appointed by God to help provide for the people of Egypt and indeed the whole world in a season of very severe famine. But as we turn now to the book of Exodus to consider the time of Moses, the people of God are now seen by the Egyptians as a threat. You see, the people of God had prospered. They were multiplying just as God promised Abraham they would. And when the new king in Egypt, a new Pharaoh arises, he fears an insurrection. He fears that this population of Hebrews would be too great for the Egyptians to control if they wanted to free themselves by way of rebellion. So Pharaoh, according to the Bible, develops a twofold plan to deal with this growing problem of the Hebrews in Egypt. The first one is to oppress them. And the second one is to do some population control. Firstly, he says, I'm going to deal with them harshly. I want to break their will so they would lose their desire to rebel. I want to remind them of Egypt's unparalleled power and construct an identity in their mind that they are slaves, that they are weak, that they are inferior, and that they can't do anything to overcome our power. Secondly, he begins to orchestrate some population control. He tries to to get the Hebrew midwives involved by murdering any male Hebrew that is born. And of course, they don't do that because they fear the Lord. And just as a reminder, those of us who fear the Lord, we don't kill babies, right? So Pharaoh commands all the babies, all the the babies of the Hebrews, since the midwives won't do the work, he commands them to be thrown into the Nile. It's population control. This is a terrible time in the history of God's people. This oppression, this, this murder of babies. Terrible, terrible time. And yet, in the midst of all of this difficulty, we all see, also see God at work. We also see that God, once again, has not forgotten the promise that he made to his people. In fact, he uses the evil of Pharaoh to position a prophet a new kind of prophet. God's name was Moses, who would deliver his people from this Egyptian oppression. You see, one Hebrew woman, her name was Jochebed, she took incredibly brave action. Incredibly brave action. She hid her son against the command of Pharaoh for three months And when she could hide him no longer, she waited until the time that she knew Pharaoh's daughter would be bathing in the Nile 
to place her son, Moses, in a basket and send it down the Nile in hopes, under God's sovereignty, that this daughter of Pharaoh would find Moses. And she did. Pharaoh's daughter found this baby and she brought a Hebrew baby, the very baby that Pharaoh said, you must drown. She brought this Hebrew baby in to the house of Pharaoh. And friends, let me just say for a moment, only God could write a story like this. Only God could write a story like this. Moses grows up in privilege. And here's what's even more incredible. He also grows up with his mother, whom Pharaoh's daughter hires to nurse him. Isn't that incredible? And so as he grows up in Egypt, he also grows up with the understanding that he's a man of two worlds. He's in the house of Pharaoh, but he's also a Hebrew. In this conflict of identity spills over into a very tragic moment when Moses kills an Egyptian whom he sees beating a Hebrew. But as often happens in stories that God writes, this moment of failure becomes an opportunity for God to finally call Moses into the position that he had been preparing him for. God sets Moses apart to be his representative before his people and before Pharaoh to orchestrate a miraculous deliverance, a deliverance that could only come by the hands of the one true God, the God who's been introducing himself to us in the scripture and introducing himself to his people. And many of you know the story as it, can, as it unfolds. Moses comes before Pharaoh several times. He's given miracles and then plagues. And he says to Pharaoh, 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 oh, oh, let my people go. Ooh, ah, you heard that VBS song? And despite the miraculous signs, despite the plagues, Pharaoh relents. He does not let the people of God go. Over and over he refuses. It takes a drastic plague. The tent, the plague of the firstborn, to actually get him to release the people of God. Every firstborn child in a household not covered by the blood of a spotless lamb will die. And it happens. And when Pharaoh hears the cries of devastation in his household, and all the households surrounding him, he finally tells Moses to take his people and get out. But after some time of thinking about it, after sending them out, even after losing all of these firstborn children in Egypt, he begins to relent. He begins to regret. He changes his mind. And this is where we pick up the story at the climax of the Exodus story in Exodus chapter 14. Do you turn with me? As we see how God ultimately displays his power against the people of Egypt. Beginning in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this thing that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. That's a nice way to put it, isn't it? 
from the privilege of serving us. <laughs> so he made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him. And listen to the, the amount that he's taking with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the Pharaoh of king, uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people while the people, excuse me, of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen, his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea. Those places there, I'm not even going to try to pronounce. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? That's not what they said, by the way. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. There's a challenge. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back, by a strong east wind all night. Did you imagine watching that all night? And made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters began being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire of cloud looked down at the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging the chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may close back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the ground through the sea. 
the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. In his servant Moses. This is an incredible story of deliverance. Isn't it? An incredible story of deliverance. Consider what the people of God were facing here. They were hopeless. They had nowhere to go, literally. Nowhere to go. They were powerless. They were facing a clearly more powerful enemy. Chariots, horses, weapons, and they were afraid. They were consumed with fear. They were panicked, not knowing if God could deliver them. But in the face of insurmountable odds, in the face of certain death, God orchestrates a miraculous deliverance. And he does it through his servant Moses. He leads his people to safety and destroys their enemies. So many encouragements here for the people of God. So many encouragements from this story that that would have encouraged the people of God then and should encourage us today. Let's consider four specifically. Four encouragements the people of God should get from this story and specifically about the nature of deliverance and the way that God works to deliver his people even when it seems impossible. Because with God, all things are possible. What does this story teach us? How does this story teach, encourage us about the nature of God's work of deliverance? Firstly, the story reveals the need for deliverance. The story reveals a need for deliverance, the kind of deliverance that only God can bring about. The greatness of the deliverance begins with an understanding of the need, the incredible need for deliverance. There is an active oppression here at work, an active enemy at work. The people of God are in physical bondage, and they cannot get out on their own. But the text also shows more than that. Tim Keller says that in this text, we see layers of bondage. There's physical bondage, but there's also other kinds of bondage that the people of God need to be delivered from. The people of God needed to be delivered from the physical bondage of Egypt, yes. The most powerful nation on the planet was holding them in slavery. That's a real physical need. To to be able to enjoy the blessing that God had promised this people, they had to get out of slavery. But they also needed to be delivered from their identity as slaves. Look at verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Notice, even though the people of God were physically free, even though they had already been delivered, even though they were outside of the control of Egypt, they did not act like they were free. Instead of 
trusting in the goodness of what God had for them, they began longing for the land of their enslavement, forgetting the oppression and forgetting their cries to the Lord. Right? We see in the the text here in verses 11 to 13. How do they remember their conversation with the Lord? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Verse 12, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And then this is really great in chapter 16, verse 3. Listen to this beauty. The people of Israel said to them, Moses and Aaron, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots (laughs) and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. It's amazing how they begin to romanticize their time of enslavement. But listen to their cry in chapter 4 of the book of Exodus. Beginning in verse 29. Moses and Aaron went and gathered together the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did signs, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. They worshipped this God who was sending someone to deliver them because they were broken. They were in bondage and they needed deliverance physically. And they also needed deliverance Spiritually, this this need is multi-layered, not just from the physical oppression, but also from the false belief that the land of oppression was better. They had to move from being guided by fear to being guided by faith as the people of God. They needed to be delivered in multiple ways. This is so important for the people of God to be the kind of people that God had called them to be, to be the light to the nations, to be the blessing, the nation of blessing through which God would bless all other nations. They were to be a people of faith, revealing to the world the benefit of walking under the sovereign lordship, of, of giving their worship to this one true God. They needed to, to experience the blessing of God in order to declare the goodness of God to invite others into the blessing of God. They were to be lights to the world. They were not to be free and long to live under the rule of another king. There's a need here for deliverance, physical, but also spiritual deliverance, layered deliverance. kind of deliverance that only God could bring about. And that leads us to point number two. What does this story teach us about God's work of deliverance? Not only does it reveal the need, the story reminds us that it's God alone who can bring about this deliverance. He alone can do this work. Over and over again, we are reminded in the text that what is taking place can only have taken place by the hand of God. While at first, even some of the the miracles that are given to Moses can be mimicked by the magicians in Egypt, ultimately the power that is shown in the story of the Exodus is too great for any man to do. And certainly too great for any false god to do. 
And look at Moses' response to the people's cry in verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, fear not, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which who will work? He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Why? Because the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. You need to just sit back, shut your mouth, and watch. Because God's going to do something that you could never do. Do not be overwhelmed by fear. Do not be guided by fear. Rather, be guided by faith in the God who has brought you this far. See what God has done. Trust in what he has done, his ability, and marvel at what he's about to do. God will bring about this deliverance, and he will do it without your help. You stand firm, watch, and see God carry out this deliverance. Everything that happens in this passage is meant to bring glory to God. Everything that happens in this passage, everything that happens in the entirety of Scripture, by the way, the entirety of creation is meant to glorify God. This, this story is no exception. The Israelites will know and the Egyptians will know, according to verse 18, by the end of the story, that there is only one God. Only one. Now those false gods in Egypt, they don't have this kind of power. You know why? Because they ain't real. They were made up by man. There's one true God who created all things, and he's about to put on a show. God has allowed these circumstances to come about so that he could show his unmatched power in the midst of them. He allowed his people to see their weakness and their need so that he could show his strength and his provision. There's no power on earth that is greater than the power of God because when he fights for you, he wins. You know, sometimes the hardest thing for the people of God to do is to sit back and let God fight for us. Yeah, that's precisely what he calls us to do. To stand still and watch the salvation that he alone can bring. God alone. God alone can deliver you from what you need to be delivered from. Thirdly, not only does it reveal the need and, and establish that God alone can deliver from that need, the story of the Exodus establishes the use of a mediator in his work of deliverance. That while God alone can deliver that need, he, he uses a unique person to bring about that deliverance. A, a person uniquely positioned by him, a mediator to bring about this deliverance. God accomplished this work of deliverance through a divinely positioned mediator, in this case, Moses. Look at how the text speaks of the position of Moses. We've already seen that, that God had positioned Moses to represent God before the people. But look at verse 15. 
after all the complaining, right, of the people, the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Isn't that interesting? Have you seen Moses crying? Who's been crying? The people. And yet, God identifies Moses with the people. Moses is so identified before the people as a representative of God, but before God as a representative of the people. He's a mediator, uniquely positioned as an in-between between God and man to deliver the words of God to man, but also to deliver the response of man to God. Moses is uniquely positioned, hear me, not just between Israel and Egypt, but between mankind and God. When he speaks, it's as if God is speaking. He's a new kind of prophet, and at the same time, he is held accountable by God for the actions of man. He identifies with both. This is an important figure that's introduced in Scripture, an important Work, this mediating work that's introduced in Scripture. Someone set above man to represent God to man and also man to God. And it's because of the work of Moses that the people are blessed. And finally, the story of Exodus encourages the people of God to rest in the deliverance of God. It shows the need, that God can alone meet the need, that he chooses to meet the need through a mediator, and then it calls the people of God to rest, to rest in the deliverance that God has brought about. One of the interesting ideas or themes that you can follow through this passage is the idea of seeing, of, of what God's people are looking at. Like the, the language of your eyes and, and seeing and, and, and what you're looking at is, is, is prevalent in this text. You see it throughout in verse 10. The people of God are said to have lifted their eyes and seen Pharaoh. And the people of, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold. What is it that they're beholding? What is it that they're looking at in this moment? The Egyptians. Their eyes were set on the Egyptians, and as a result, they were consumed with fear. Their response was based on what they were looking at. But then notice how this changes throughout the text. Moses encourages them in verses 13 and 14 to look at something different, right? Don't look at the Egyptians. Don't, don't be overwhelmed by the Egyptians. No, no, fear not. Stand firm and see what? The Lord the salvation of the Lord. Don't see the threat of the enemy. Don't look at the threat of the enemy. You see the salvation of the Lord. And then look at how the text ends. In verse 30 and 31. Thus says the Lord, or thus the Lord, saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And listen, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What, what consumed them with fear, what worried them, they now see dead. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people no longer feared Egypt. Who do they fear now? The Lord. 
And because they feared the Lord, they had their eyes set in the right place, they believed in the Lord and in his servant, the mediator, Moses. They saw, they witnessed God working to defeat that which they were afraid of. And in seeing the completed work of God, they were able to believe, to be overwhelmed by faith rather than fear. And what an encouragement to the people of God. To not be, to not set your eyes on your circumstance, to not set your eyes on your enemy, but to set your eyes on the God who alone can deliver you. And think about how God used that that encouragement throughout the history of Israel, right? Threatened over and over again by, by powers around them that seemed too great. Faced with many difficult situations. And prophet after prophet reminds them, what are you looking at? What are you focusing on? Do you remember the God who delivered you out of Egypt? Do you remember the God who miraculously delivered you from the hands of the most powerful nation on the earth at that time? And do you remember how he brought you into the land of promise? That same God who faithfully delivered you then can deliver you today. You don't be overwhelmed by faith or fear. Don't look at your enemy. You look at him. And let you, you let your faith be rooted in him. This story was meant to be a reminder of the unparalleled power and provision of God for his people. Very encouraging to the people of God. But this story also sets the foundation in many ways for the larger story of God's redemptive work in Scripture. The story of the Exodus is a story that is celebrated throughout the Bible and used to help explain later the works of deliverance of God. If there's any story in the Bible that is meant for us to see through a Christ-centered lens, it is certainly the story of Exodus because the Bible over and over again asks us to consider the work of Christ as a greater work than what we see or a greater example of the work that we see in the story of Exodus. You see, this story of deliverance all the way back in Exodus through Exodus 14 and beyond is meant to prepare us as God's people for a greater story of deliverance, the story of Jesus. You see, we know a greater mediator. We know a greater mediator who has secured a greater deliverance, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ, as we read in Hebrews 3 this morning, is the true and better Moses who has delivered us from a greater enemy and will lead us into a greater land of promise. So let's think. Let's, let's build on the encouragement we've already seen to see how this story prepares us in greater ways for the work of deliverance that God has done in Jesus. Well, the story prepares us, the story of Moses prepares us to understand our greater need for deliverance. Not just at that one moment in time, but mankind across all moments of time. 
In understanding the gospel, we first have to ask the question of why. Why do we need deliverance? What is the problem we face? And we, we get clues from the story of Exodus and that moment in time to help us understand our greater need, our greater need to be delivered from. You see, we live in oppression. Mankind lives in oppression. Mankind lives in bondage, a greater bondage to a greater enemy. We live in bondage to sin. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says this, there is not one righteous. No, not one. And we are enslaved to sin. As we see in Romans 6, 6, before Christ, we are enslaved to sin. The Bible wants us to see that we need deliverance. And the same way that the people of God in the book of Exodus need deliverance from a mighty power. We all need a greater deliverance from a greater threat. We need to be set free from the bondage we live in. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that you live in bondage. Right? You know that you are not living in freedom. You know that you're not sitting by meat pots. You know that you're not living in the kind of way that God had designed you to live. That we have a master who is working to destroy us rather than to bless us. Sin leads to destruction. Satan wants to destroy us. To steal, kill, and destroy, the Bible says. We need deliverance, hear me, from the penalty of sin... But we also need deliverance from the power of sin and the presence of sin. We need deliverance from the fullness of sin's havoc in our life. And we are all crying out to the Lord for help. Tremendous need. We're enemies of God. Living in a foreign and distant land. And we need to be brought close to the Lord. We need to be delivered from that oppression of sin. But more than that, we also need to be delivered from the mentality and the mindset of being slaves. We need to be delivered from the, the, the lie that once we are in freedom, that what we had before God was better. How often, Christian, do you find yourself thinking about your time of enslavement, romanticizing it, thinking that it was better than what God has for you all. May God deliver us from that lie. That as he's delivered us from the penalty of sin, he will continue to deliver us from the power of sin in our life the lure of sin, and remind us that there is coming a day when we will be free from the presence of sin for all of eternity. Praise be to God. Tremendous need that we are powerless against, that we are lost in. And that's why we turn to God. Number two, this story helps us again to consider the unique ability of God to deliver us. To deliver us in, from this greater threat. 
In the same way that Israel could not save themselves, we cannot save ourselves. The work is not something we can do on our own. Our enemy is too powerful. Our sin has too great a hold on us, and we have been called to stand firm and watch. As we get overwhelmed by sin, as we get overwhelmed by the threat against us, as we get overwhelmed by the prospect of spending an eternity away from God in hell, God does not call us to focus our eyes on that threat. Our God calls us to focus our eyes on Him and to see the miraculous salvation that He alone could bring about. He works. Because we could not work. He does what we could not do. And this is so difficult for us. We want to take our salvation into our own hands, don't we? We want to have some skin in the game. We want to, to do some work to feel like we earned, that we earned the salvation that God alone can give. But remember, our salvation, our deliverance, is meant to lead to the very same thing that the deliverance of God's people next to this was meant to lead to. And that's the glory of God. If the Israelites had done some of the work to save themselves from Egypt, they could have shared in the glory of that work. But they didn't do a thing, right? They were surrounded, surrounded. All the Egyptians, all the Egyptians on one side a sea on the other. There was nothing they could do but watch. And God showed up. He fought for them. Anybody watching knew that Israel had no business walking away from that sentence of death. And yet, God did something miraculous. He gets all the glory and honor and praise. And friends, the same is true for our deliverance. We're surrounded we're powerless. We're hopeless. There's not a thing we could do. And that's exactly how God designed it so that he would get all the glory for our salvation. We couldn't earn what he has freely given. And we worship him because we recognize our helplessness. We recognize our powerlessness and we recognize the grace and mercy that has been given to us by God in Jesus. And we rejoice as we've seen the salvation of our Lord. Thirdly, in the same way, the story of the Exodus reveals our need and shows us that God only meet that need. We see that in greater ways as we look past it throughout the, the entire story of redemption. Similarly, the story of Exodus calls us to look for a greater mediator. This idea of, of a mediator being used by God continues throughout Scripture and it calls us to, to long for a greater mediator. It is through Moses that God orchestrated his work of salvation for Israel. But remember, Moses was flawed, right? He was a murderer. He was also fearful. He was rash. And he was ultimately unable to lead the people of God into the land of promise. There's a lot of things to celebrate 
about the life of Moses, and we should, as a faithful brother. But there are also a lot of weaknesses. There's sin in his life, just like the rest of us. And the Bible is calling us, as we consider the weakness and the failures of Moses, to ask the question, is there a better mediator who can more faithfully represent God to man and more faithfully represent man to God? Is there someone who can truly stand in the gap that exists between God and man because of sin? And the Bible clearly says the answer to that question is yes. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. Hebrews 3, 1 to 6, we've already read. Jesus identifies with God in a unique way. And he represents man in a unique way. He is the Word of God incarnate. He doesn't just speak for God. He is God. And he's not imperfect in his representation of man. He perfectly represents man. He perfectly fulfills the righteous requirement of God. He's the perfect representative of God to man so that when we behold the, the face of the Son, we behold the face of the Father. But he's also the perfect representation of man's response to God. He shows us how we are to respond to God's revelation of himself. He is the perfect mediator who perfectly represents us upon the cross. And remember, he orchestrates the deliverance of us, of God's people, not just by bringing the plagues, but taking them upon himself. He doesn't just bring judgment on the enemies of God. Jesus takes that judgment upon himself so that we would not end up in the water. So that we could end up on the other side. Finally, the story reminds us to rest in God's glorious work of deliverance. When we see our enemy, when we see our sin, it can be overwhelming. When we put our eyes on the righteous expectation of God, it can be overwhelming. But this is a call to remember to look in the right place. To see your enemy defeated and to put your eyes on Jesus, the victory in Christ. Friends, the cross of Christ and his resurrection must always be in eyesight for us. We have to constantly keep our eyes on him because when we see that victory, when we see that work, we can believe. Initially, to be set free from the penalty of sin in our life, but also continuously as we work to be set free from the power and presence of sin in our life. We can believe in God and his servant, Jesus, and walk faithfully as God has called us to do. And we can cross from death into life, from judgment into promise, just like the people of God did. Initially in a moment of salvation, but even over and over again after salvation, 
as God continues his work of deliverance. Friends, Jesus is greater than Moses. The work of God through Moses and the Exodus is meant to prepare us for the greater work of deliverance that God would do and has done in Christ. So, how can we respond this morning? Well, first question is pretty obvious. This is a, moment, this is a, a story of deliverance. The story of salvation. Here's the question. Have you allowed God in Christ as our mediator to get you on the other side of the sea? I want you to consider your life. And remember, water in the Old Testament is often linked to judgment. In the same way that in the story of Noah, the flood was judgment. The waters of the sea closing in upon the Egyptians is a declaration of God's judgment. Here's the question for you. Where do you stand? Are you on one side of the sea, surrounded by death, waiting for judgment? Or have you allowed, or have you responded to the work of God in Christ to bring you through judgment into life and promise? There's only one way to get through the judgment. There's only one way to, to move from death on one side to life on the other, and that's through the mediator, Jesus Christ. Have you given your life to him? Have you responded? Have you seen the work that God has done for you in Jesus? And have you believed? If you haven't, oh, let today be the day. Let today be the day that you would give your heart to Christ. For the rest of us, Are we walking in freedom? If we have been saved from the penalty of sin, are we living as if we have been saved from the, the presence of sin? Are we walking in the freedom that God has given to us? Or are we thinking in our minds, are we romanticizing about the times before God. Listen, let's reject the lie that what we had before God was better. And let's embrace the truth that what he has for us is better. Living lives of faith rather than lives of fear. Or, yeah. And finally, let's commit to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And when times get difficult, whatever season you're in, you feel the weight of the sin in this world, you feel the temptation of the sin, let's encourage one another. Let's commit as a church to keep directing our attention to Christ. Let's set our eyes on Him so that we can live in the victory He's promised. Can you imagine how God could use a people who live in that kind of victory to accomplish his purposes, to extend the blessing that he has given to us to others? Oh, that God would do that work in us. Our first response this morning, though, is going to be to take the Lord's Supper. This morning, we're going to remember. We're going to remember the deliverance that God has orchestrated for us 
and we're going to set our eyes on Jesus. As a reminder, if you're not a follower of Christ yet, we ask you to not take the supper today. This is not for you. This is a testimony of those who have been delivered, who have crossed over from death to life. And we would ask you to watch. Watch the declaration of this people who have said that only in Christ could we have found this kind of salvation. Maybe after, this, after that time of remembering, you want to come forward and give your life to, to Christ. We would love that. For the rest of us, though, let's make sure that the testimony that we give today as we remember Christ is true. That we are rejoicing and testifying to the deliverance of Christ and we've been walking in that deliverance. And if there's anything in your life that would give false testimony in this moment, that you would confess it right now and bring it before the Lord so that you can take it in the right way or that you would abstain as is directed in the scripture. So wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Spend some time before the Lord asking him to make sure that your heart's right, that we would do this in a way that honors him as our deacons come forward. And Father, would you help us? Help us respond in a way that's worthy of you in this moment. Help us remember what you've done for us in Jesus. And let this be an encouragement for those of us who are in Christ. That whatever it is that we need to be delivered from, you have done the work of deliverance. And we can rest in that work. May we worship you, God, in this time we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Deacons.